Well, technology is amazing, isn't it? Time now for the business angle, presented by Blackfoot Communications, which, by the way, Blackfoot can help you with a variety of technological advancements. They have awesome fiber capabilities, also in-house and for small business networking capabilities. Visit goblackfoot.com. Business angle with Justin Angle, a couple times a month here on Nuanez Now. Justin comes to us from the East Coast. He's uh, on a family vacation out there visiting his folks. So appreciate you making some time, my man. How you doing? I'm doing well. I am, yeah, I'm located here in New Hampshire where I grew up, spending a, a week or so with my family. And uh, it's a little bizarre to land here in New England and uh, experience wildfire smoke. I know it's been a big story most of the summer with some of the smoke from the Canadian fires engulfing some of the East Coast cities. But to, to be out here and to experience it kind of juxtaposed against, you know, us having our first dose of real wildfire smoke in Missoula with a cold fire and some of the Idaho fires. Yeah, it's just kind of just it, it's a little bit of a bizarre thing to, to wake up to in the morning. If you want to learn more about wildfires, go check out Justin's great podcast, Fireline. They did this uh, a little while ago. They won a Murrow Award for it, won a whole bunch of awards for it, and uh, a book uh, attached to this is, is coming out as well. So uh, go check that out too. I know I can't. I just I can't handle the fact that there's going to be smoke already. It's my least favorite thing. I know it's completely beating a dead horse, but. Uh, it's just it's a bummer. That's why everybody should listen to this podcast, though, because it really shows you sort of the, the the ins and outs of why this is happening. Yeah, it's important for us to understand that you know, smoke is uh, inevitable in many ways. I think it's Mark Finney who works at the Rocky Mountain Research Lab who says, you know, when do you want your smoke and how do you want it? I mean, we're either going to get it from large fires that are hard to control or we're going to get it from prescribed burns that occur more often during the year. And uh, I think probably need to be more tolerant of lower intensity smoke at different times of the year. So we can avoid those long endless periods of getting engulfed by it that, that seem to paralyze us, you know, in, in late August, early September, most years. Well, let's talk some of the biggest stories in the sports world when it comes to the business angle of these stories. First and foremost, the Women's World Cup is underway. It's being played in Australia and New Zealand. And the United States Women's National Team, once again, one of the favorites in this tournament. This group of, of ladies, Justin, has has risen to uh, almost unprecedented prominence. I would say that the, the most popular and most well-known women's sports team in, a, in America, and maybe in the world, is the United States women's national soccer team. And they're gunning for their third straight World Cup title. Uh, but there's a lot here uh, that I want to get into. But, but first and foremost, what do you think the factors are that have made this group of gals uh, so, so popular, so prominent, so famous, so marketable? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a long it's a, it's a vast constellation of things. And I think it dates back to that original uh, women's world cup where the United States women just dominated and did so in a way with, with just wonderfully marketable athletes, Mia Hamm and that whole crew. And that's a long time ago, but that was the sort of moment where women's soccer in the United States became part of the popular conception. And critical to that was, it was part of the popular con conception as the best in the world. 
right? That was our first entry point into, into women's soccer, being the best in the world. And, you know, we sort of held that notion up. You know, we've never thought of the men's soccer team as being at or near the best in the world, sort of maybe trying to knock on the door from time to time. But from our very first moment as a society is really starting to think about women's soccer, we've just thought of them as the best. And they've delivered on that time and time again, this, this stretch of potentially three World Cups, to be, to be able, the ability to reload with players that are not only like pushing the boundaries of what's possible in the sport on the field, but also have been you know, pretty elo- eloquent and vocal advocates for you know, fair pay. I think in the case of women's soccer, the, the product has largely been better at the national team level than it has on the men's level. So the argument for, for, for equal, if not greater pay has been kind of uniquely compelling relative to how it manifests in other sports. Um, it is a sport that is hugely popular with young girls in the country and the families of young girls. And there's a lot of attention allocated to that. And, and so I think it, it, it yeah, just occupies this, this unique space where we think of it as the best and it, when we watch it, we experience it as the best and Americans like telling ourselves we're the best at stuff and watching the women's world cup perform as the best in the world is, is a way to uh, reinforce that, that view we have of ourselves. And to me, that's, that's a lot of the reason why it's so compelling. The business angle with Justin angle here on Nuana's now it's so true. Soccer on the men's side, I, I guess soccer as a sport was not widely consumed or, or participated in by Americans until a variety of other countries had unbelievably elite national soccer teams, Brazil and Italy and France and Mexico and Spain and Portugal and all these, you know, even Germany and, and Belgium were, were far, far ahead of the United States. The United States have caught up a little bit in men's soccer, but still so far away from being the best in the world. The United States women's national team, they got started out kind of when this when, when soccer was becoming a global phenomenon across the world of women's sports. And so we are not at nearly America is not nearly at a dis, nearly the disadvantage. I also think though, we've had some of our, our fiercest and most talented women's athletes playing soccer. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Uh, on the men's side as well. I mean, mo- a lot of our great athletes on the men's side from America are playing football or or basketball. So I I do think there's some some stuff there. But I also think the fact that there's such such strong personalities and there has been such strong personalities on the U.S. Women's National Team pretty much from the for the duration. Whether you're talking about you know Mia Hamm and Hope Solo or uh, Abby Wambach or or now Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan and some of the other most marketable gals on this team. But that's the next question I want to ask you, is the most recognizable names on this team, Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, Julie Hertz, they're also the oldest players on this team. They've been on the national team for at least two and if sometimes maybe even three World Cup cycles, this being their fourth. But there's also a whole bunch of unbelievable younger players on this team that maybe we don't know as much about, that aren't household names. How do you sort of balance that from – a marketing and business perspective. I mean, are the are the veterans standing in the way of the rise of the of the young gals, or is there a way for for them to both uh, have uh, sort of a, a chance to be, to be in the spotlight? Yeah, I guess I would think of it uh, on two levels. First is 
you know, how is the talent being managed on the field, right? Are, are the, the older athletes occupying space that they no longer um, deserve competitively at the expense of younger athletes who have maybe earned those um, opportunities but aren't, aren't getting them? It, that doesn't appear to be the case yet, although, you know, how leagues and teams and individual athletes transition through that that the, the stages of late careers, late careers of stars are, are hard to manage, as we know from, from a variety of sports and some sports and some individuals are able to do it well and, and some are not. So that's one level. On the other hand, from the business standpoint, yeah, there's kind of a fixed marketing spend out there. And that spend typically goes to the athletes around which the most compelling stories can be told. And quite often, you know, there's a long tail of stardom in, in, in marketing. And so a young athlete is going to have a hard time in a world where there's a Megan Rupino that can sort of continue to monetize her personal brand long after her, I shouldn't say long after, because she's still at the top of the sport physically, but, you know, after she is perhaps peaked on the field. She can continue to rise as an endorser. And that does crowd out opportunities for young players. Um, and so brands have to, have to manage that as well. And my sense is that the, the women, the culture of the women's national team and, 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 and sort of the camaraderie within those, within the, that crew of athletes, it's just that, Managing it competitively on the field, I think, will happen with some elegance and grace. It appears to be that way. And, you know, we'll see how that storytelling trans transitions into, into the marketing space, if it'll be uh, as smooth. We don't really know yet. Justin Engel here on ESPN Radio, the business angle presented by Blackfoot Communications. Last thing on the women's national team, I, I do think that – there's going to be a little bit of a changing of the guard here, even if the average person recognizes Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan more than you know Alyssa Thompson and Trinity Rodman and whoever else you might want to bring up. I do think there's going to be sort of a, a passing of the torch here, and, and just to, I, you know, I, I've this is what I always do. I don't really get into stuff until right when it's about to happen, and then I get really into it. So I've been listening to podcasts about the, the Women's World Cup, and by all accounts. This Alyssa Thompson girl is a, a true prodigy. I mean, she's considered perhaps the greatest high school player in the history of the United States. And there's people that are saying that if she fulfills her potential, she will be the greatest American soccer player, man or woman, ever. And she's only 18 years old. That's a lot to put on a young lady, but her talent is that prodigious. So uh, you just wonder uh, if the, the passing of the torch will actually be advantageous for everybody, right? If, if Megan Rapino can still sort of be the face of this team, but also help ease the transition of this new prodigy. And same thing with Alex Morgan. It, it could be a fascinating thing to watch, and this actually could make sort of the brand of this United States women's soccer team even stronger and even more sustainable. Yeah, the ingredients are there for a really – a really kind of compelling transition. You've got a, a young athlete with a world of potential um, and a world of expectation. And we've seen that before. It happens over and over again in sport. And I think that that role for, you know, that sort of character in the American um, 
conception is getting younger and they're getting more exposed, right? With social media and now in the college sports name, image and likeness and all these reasons that I think put more spotlight and expectation on those prodigies. Um, and then we've got athletes that are performing at a high level deeper into middle age. And so this provides, I think, the context for a lot of wonderful kind of mentorship. And in a team sport like soccer, you know, there's, there's enough players on the field where I think you can have some, some you can have enough overlap and mentorship in real time where it, it, it could be a healthy model for transition. It, it, it would be nice to, it'd be a nice thing to see because so often it, it descends into, um, you know, a drama of another sort and uh, the, that rarely ends well for, for most involved. It should be fascinating to watch play out. The uh, United States women's national team play their first World Cup match tomorrow, so we'll keep you apprised of what's going on there. Uh, on the soccer note, the business angle, presented by Blackfoot Communications, visit goblackfoot.com to see how Blackfoot can help you and your small business. Kylian Mbappe is one of the most prominent sporting names in the world, and, and you might not know if you're not into soccer, but he, he is the Frenchman who is uh, – one of the rising stars, one of the great uh, up-and-coming players uh, in the world. But he uh, just signed with a Saudi Arabian club, Al-Halal, and they are set to pay a $332 million transfer fee. That's 300 million euros for those keeping track. And Mbappe is set to accept a $775 million salary packet. I can't even believe that that's a real thing to, that I'm saying on the radio. <laughs> but, th- I mean, this is precedent-setting for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, and, uh, these dollar figures are unbelievable. And, you know, it would be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, the amount of money flowing into soccer at the highest levels around some of these players – it's kind of hard to fathom that these organizations, these teams, these leagues will get rate of return on that kind of an, of an investment. Uh, just look at the Inter-Miami game from two days ago, I think it was, where Messi scored that game-winning goal late off of the free kick, and it just captivated the news cycle in, in an amazing way. And like the, 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 the sort of star power that was on hand to watch that game in Miami. Now, well, is that an analog for what could happen in in Saudi Arabia? Is sport or is soccer going to be played in an accessible way there where enough people can watch it? Is there enough TV revenue to be had? Uh, it, it seems, is there enough other teams for Mbappé to compete against? What's that league going to look like? There's a lot of ifs in my mind, and part of it is just I'm not as well versed in, in how you know soccer works in that particular on that particular stage. But it does seem like these numbers are just kind of mind-bogglingly large, um, and there's got to be so much more to it than just a TV deal behind the uh, the contract to. to to, to sort of imagine what sort of rates of return they could they could get on this investment. 
that's the most fascinating parallel is how do you equate the rate of return on investment? We're seeing this in the NBA right now. Jalen Brown just signed the richest deal in NBA history, five years, $304 million. So that is less than half in, in total number of what Kylian Mbappe is signing. But I do think the NBA is such a fascinating model because on one hand, a $304 million contract is staggering. That's the biggest deal in the history of the NBA. On the other hand, you could certainly make the argument that that's a great bargain for the Boston Celtics for two reasons. One, Jalen Brown's just the next one, but every guy that comes up for a contract upcoming is going to become then the next richest player uh, in NBA history. The second part, though, is especially in the NBA where the, the stars are so marketable and they are such a huge part of the brand of the league, I mean – I was joking about this the other day, but if I was LeBron James now in year 20 and at 38 years old, I would ask for the Michael Jordan deal where I'm signing one-year contracts every year, except for I wouldn't do it for $30 million like Michael Jordan was doing. I'd ask for $100 million because LeBron James is absolutely worth $100 million to the Los Angeles Lakers. So to me, the sort of return on investment, even though the NBA numbers are staggering, it makes sense. I don't know how you could possibly get one soccer player to give you the return on investment for almost a billion-dollar contract, but uh, I don't know. But what do I know? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's – it's, I mean, the soccer world is a little bit more of a free market, right? Because these players can move around from team to team, um, and there's some constraints on that. And they do have to have other good teams to play against, although these teams can play in various – you know, there's various kind of high-level tournaments and interleague mixing throughout the world. So there are – it is a long season, and there's plenty of ways for an athlete to get it, get it exposure. And we'll sort of see how that works out. In the NBA, it's a, it's a weird market, right? Like the players that are sometimes in a given offseason getting the max contracts are, are, and, and getting paid more than anybody else in the league, they're not necessarily the best players. They're of the elite cadre. But a lot of times a team will you know, give a player a max deal as part of a trade or to retain a player um, because they just don't have anywhere else to go with that money and the cost of losing that player is too high. Does that justify the salary you pay them? It's hard to know. And, and I think another layer in this, and this is sort of distinct from the Mbappe uh, contracts, but what is the financial health of the NBA and ESPN, which is sort of the, the biggest um, broadcast partner with the NBA? I mean, a couple segments ago, we were talking about the layoffs at ESPN and how deep they went into their NBA talent space. And, you know, we see on the one hand, these max contracts rolling out for players, but the broadcast partners are cutting costs. And does that, does that indicate that the broadcast partners are overextended? Uh, or is it Disney being a giant company, Disney owning ESPN, and they have financial pressures elsewhere that they need to just cut costs across the board? So I'd be curious to know what kind of the financial health of, of the NBA as an ongoing concern is relative to the, their ability to kind of continue to pump out these contracts for who, these players that are, that are good, but they're not necessarily the best at getting the highest paid salaries. How much do you think the, uh, the broadcasting part of it is just that the NBA realizes that 
the players are what's the draw. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is you can have the greatest play-by-play and color commentators ever. How much is that actually adding to your viewership? It's Lebr- Everybody's going there to watch LeBron James and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and yada, yada, yada. Is anybody actually going to watch the game less because it's Chris Webber and Reggie Miller instead of Jeff Van Gundy? I don't know. Maybe that's the cost-cutting measure that ESPN's embarking on. I mean, that could be it. That could be – I mean, we've talked over the years about how – the, the current model of pro sports, and I think this is most salient in the NFL, is like power and attention is accruing to the athlete. The athletes hold more power. They speak directly to the fans through their social media feeds. They seem to be you know, carry more power than coaches and general managers. Uh, they can move around. They're sort of, um, you take a look like a Kevin Durant, and he's in some ways a man without a country, but he's got there's a lot of Durant fans who aren't necessarily fans of the Suns, right? They're just Kevin Durant fans. Um, and so that, that's a possibility. I mean, people tune in to watch the players and they don't really care who's doing the commentary. I mean, folks like you, Coulter, that kind of geek out about it and understand it, you can probably appreciate the, the insightful comments that a Jeff Van Gundy or somebody else like him can add. But for the average fan, they might not even care. They might not even be watching right? They might be like scrolling the game on Twitter as they watch it on mute or, or you know, some, some other combination. The other thing there is like, what is, if the, if the games and the players are kind of the supply, what is the distribution model? And is the distribution model shifting to away from terrestrial television and more to some sort of gamified substrate. What I'm getting at here is like, are we going to eventually move to a world where gambling is so embedded in the product and in the experience of watching a sports game that we're going to be watching it through some mechanism that includes gaming in it um, or gambling in it. And uh, that might, you, I, I hear you kind of snickering. Does that mean you don't buy into my dystopian view of this world or that it's just too grim to confront? No, I, I actually think that that's exactly what's going to happen. I also just think that people are going to be – people are we're already training ourselves to watch things how we want to watch them. I think about this when it comes to the NFL all the time. I don't particularly think that any of the color commentator guys in the NFL besides Chris Collinsworth – Teach me anything. And that's not me being self-righteous or anything like that, but I do think that the way that the NFL is analyzed and commentated on on a national level is an incredibly homogenized version of football, and I totally understand why they make that broadcast decision. They Football is an incredibly complicated sport that has so many moving parts. The most... Uh, the most centered and, and sort of most easy-to-palate to version of football is... The quarterback gets the ball, and the quarterback's the most important guy, and the quarterback and the quarterback and the quarterback and the quarterback, right? It's the most marketable players in the league. It's also the easiest way to describe it to people. But, like, when I watch the NFL, I watch the NFL more than I watch any other sport. I watch the NFL with with the sound off or with the sound very low because I'm generally probably watching it with my brother and our commentary and what what we see and how we watch football is distinctly different than what the, the broadcast is presenting. So I, I don't know. I, I guess it's, it's very interesting because what you're saying and what we're saying I think is the same thing. We are going to see this evolve an incredible amount, 
And, and I do think that the influx of sports gambling is absolutely going to have an influence on it. Yeah, I mean, it could change the whole shape of how we watch these games and, you know, what sort of media ent- enterprises will will unfold and, you know, how tethered to how important is a big screen? Will it be more of a mobile device consumption environment? And if it's a mobile device consumption environment, you know, a talking head telling me what's happening is less important than, you know, maybe the features associated with the app in which I'm watching it and how quickly I can place a bet on a free throw happening in real time or whether, you know, a tackle gets made or, you know, things, things like that. I think that, you know, gambling is such sports betting is such a, a, a dominant emergent force in sport that it's going to drive how we consume the product and therefore will drive how the product is conceived. And I don't just mean that from the typical themes of potential nefarious, you know, game fixing and point shaving and that sort of stuff. I think it's rather than manifesting in those ways with illicit behavior, it's going to take form of how actually consumers interact with the product, how it gets delivered to us and how we consume it. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Nuan is now ESPN Radio, The Business Angle. Justin Angle joining us from New Hampshire this week. Uh, We'll have uh, a segment with him coming up when he's back around these parts, but I appreciate him taking some time while he's out there uh, on the family vacation. Uh, Sports Illustrated came out with their latest power issue, which shows the most powerful, influential, and marketable people in sports. I just cracked it last night, so I I got about two people in before I fell asleep reading it, but... uh, the, the one I wanted to talk about, though, is a guy that's been in the news, I mean, pretty much constantly, but certainly this last month or so, that's Patrick Mahomes, because he has a new Netflix documentary that chronicles just what it's like to be a quarterback uh, in the NFL. And I, I think that Mahomes has such an interesting stranglehold on the uh, the public consciousness for a variety of reasons. First of all, he's a spectacular player. The way that he plays is just so conducive to this you know, 30-second clip era that we live in, if all you ever watched was all Patrick Mahomes' 30-second clips, you'd have a lot of content and probably more than anybody else in the NFL over the last 10 or 15 years. I also think, though, uh, I don't particularly enjoy Mahomes as a personality, but I think a heck of a lot of people around America do. I mean, he's got his his funny haircut. Well, you know, his, I, I think I said in the, in the outline, he's got a middle school kid's haircut, and he wears his 1980s, you know, Randy Savage, Macho Man Randy Savage sunglasses. He just seems like this everyman, even though he's this superhuman when he puts on the pads and the helmet. So, uh, first of all, I mean, have you watched this quarterback? And if so, what do you think? But either way, what do you think this could do for Mahomes' image and marketability? I started the series, and I think it's going to be as, if not more compelling than this whole cadre of sports documentary series that Netflix has come out with. I mean, the 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 drive to survive and the full swing and break point and this unchained about the tour de France are all so good. Highly recommend checking them out. Um, and I agree with you on Mahomes. like his, his personal style isn't really super compelling to me, but it, it he's like engineered in a way for this current social media landscape, whether it's the highlights that he's capable of, you know, pulling off on the field or how he kind of has crafted this, this, um, 
this, his own brand persona to kind of match the, the, where the NFL is at with its relationship to the fans. He's playful. He's charismatic. Um, you want to watch him play because you, anytime he touches the ball, something could happen that we've never seen before and may never see again. And I think too, like he presents as, I won't say like as, a, as an everyday normal dude, but as enough of an everyday normal dude with some, you know, interesting personality quirks that you kind of, he's accessible. Right. And I think that accessibility is a human, um, whether that flavor of human resonates with you or not, he, he comes off as real and authentic. And that, um, I think people like seeing somebody who can be a magician in one context of their life, be ultimately human in another context of their life. I mean, it's like Tom Brady is, is doing the Stetson man commercials and he's, you know, he's the prettiest guy ever to live. And, and, there, when he's marketing your product, you're selling this this image of you know it's fancy, it's high class, it's it's elite, it's unattainable. Yeah. Then he got Mahomes. He's selling you, you know. I mean, there's a reason that Mahomes is selling you head and shoulders. He's not selling you Vidal Sassoon or whatever. The, I don't even know. I don't even have any hair, so I don't even know what the the fancy shampoos are. But uh, you know, Mahomes is selling you the everyday stuff. He's drinking his Coors Light. He's got his forty dollars sunglasses he bought at the gas station. You know, he's. He's spilling ketchup on himself all the time because he loves his hot dog. I mean, it, it really is relatable, and I think the reason it is so relatable is I don't think any of this stuff is contrived. I think it is actually who he is. And so, like we say, even if we aren't necessarily buying what he's selling, a whole lot of everyday people in America definitely are. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, like, his team plays in Kansas City, like straight in the middle of the country, and there's sort of this all-American, everyman thing happening there it's not quite it's a different flavor than was Brett Favre um, but it's got some similar characteristics Uh, you know Brett Favre's kind of personal brand has taken a bit of a nosedive in the last 10 years but when he was a player he kind of had some of that same persona that grit that ability to like hold on to the ball a little bit longer than is probably advisable but uh, there was enough of a chance of him, you know, doing a Houdini act and getting out of it and making something happen that people would play along. And then his personal brand was kind of built around cowboy gunslinger and Mahomes is a little bit of a different flavor of that. It's like a, a modern version, a hipster gunslinger in some way. And it, it certainly resonates with folks and it, it seems to be working for him just fine. Justin Engel, the business angle here on Nuanas. Now he joins us a couple times a month. Uh, we appreciate Blackfoot Communications for their proud sponsorship of the business angle. To see how Blackfoot can help you and your small business, visit goblackfoot.com. Justin, also the host of a New Angle podcast, and I actually just saw your latest Instagram post. you got a new one coming out, so just uh, plug that real quick before we let you go. Yeah, the one coming out this week, Thursday. Um, I, every month I do an episode with Bryce Ward, an economist and kind of expert on all things in and around Montana. And, you know, if you think about the news cycle this summer, it's kind of been uh, a little bit uh, slow. I mean, we saw a lot of energy put toward covering the submarine that uh, was lost at sea. Certainly a tragedy, but um, at the end of the day, that was like a lot of rich folks doing something super dangerous. How how newsworthy is that? Um, I don't exactly know, but maybe it's a sign that things aren't maybe, things are pretty good, actually. 
that um, you know we're we're conditioned often in the media to think that everything's bad, and uh, things right now are pretty good. So we check in on some of those metrics that indicate that things are are going better. Um, some economic metrics, some health metrics, but also we get into some recent research showing that this bias we have toward thinking everything is terrible and that some unspecified time in the past was better appears to be a default setting in the psyche of human beings. Um, and so we get into some of those research findings and what might be driving them. So yeah, interesting episode. Feel free to tune in tomorrow night, 7.30 on uh, Montana Public Radio. There you go. A new Angle podcast and also on Montana Public Radio. He's Justin Angle. Thanks for being here, man. Enjoy your trip. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon.